if ever there was a crisis in recent decades that has a transformative effect, it is this one. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios, and on the phone line, Mark Vandenbosch, and we're about to launch episode two here of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. So Mark, how are you feeling today? You still have that uh, sexy baritone voice going today? Well, I always have a sexy baritone voice, but uh, actually today it is not due to being sick. I'm doing a lot better, thank you. In a few minutes, we're not going to go on for too long. We're going to soon get to the interview that uh, I conducted with uh, Professor Paul Tahart of Utrecht University, one of the leading crisis management experts in Europe. We'll be talking to him in a few moments. But uh, first, a bit of a uh, rundown on some of the items that have caught your eye. So, Mark, uh, what uh, what are the stories that you think are most relevant in right. the current crisis drama that we're living through here? Right, a bit of a 360. Well, I think one of the interesting things is how different parts of the world have addressed this crisis. And this seems to be a common denominator for many places, especially in Europe now and a little bit in, in the United States as well. And India going into lockdown yesterday. So some people are taking some very draconian steps. But in contrast, Sweden is a bit of an outlier, uh, actually getting a lot of attention internationally for its strategy. And uh, in many circles being criticized for it. Some people even writing that we're playing Russian roulette with the COVID-19 strategy. Some internal criticism coming from inside of Sweden from some uh, medical experts and also uh, getting attention internationally as well. So you're absolutely right about that, Mark. And uh, we're going to talk about the Swedish situation a little bit and also some of the comparables uh, in other countries that have approached this in a rather different way. Seems like the um, the two um, paths towards uh, trying to address the crisis is either uh, aggressive lockdown measures, which, as you mentioned, India just instituted yesterday. I think it's 21 days over there. Or aggressive testing, which seemed to be the path in South Korea and other Asian countries. It's seems like yeah. Sweden is not doing really either of those, kind of doing those a little bit of each, but they're not really pursuing either in a very aggressive manner. No, and you know that one of the big Swedish words that is used here is lagom. And I'm not sure the lagom approach is the best one for this. but the Kind church, of the Goldilocks approach, right? Um, perhaps. Not too warm, not too cold. But uh, you were talking about some of the aggressive steps being taken, and some of it is pure lockdown, but the others are relying on technology and tracing people's movements. And of course, intensive testing, like in Iceland, apparently not everyone is important to get tested even if you're completely healthy or another example we talked about south korea there uh, they still have the international flight time but now uh, since sunday every single passenger that lands at the south korean airport actually gets a test before being released from the airport. How long does it take to get the results of such tests? Right, and that's actually another topic of conversation. I don't know if we'll have time to address it today, but there's a lot of different types of testing procedures available out there, but some of them will give you a result within one hour. Okay, because in the United States, one of the senators, Rand Paul, he was tested some days ago, and in the meantime, before getting the results of his test, he actually turned out to be positive and he met quite a few people. So it can be hours or days. I mean, what are the differences between these tests? Yeah, well, I think part of it is scientific. I don't, I'm not really qualified to talk exactly how they take place. I think the bigger problem is the logistics of it and how people are administering them and how they're being handled on the back end from an administrative perspective. I know that in America, there's tons of examples of people getting tested, waiting three, four days, not getting an answer. Uh, whereas in other places, like in South Korea, Singapore is also a very good example. Taiwan and the Asian countries, they apparently have a better logistic system to, to deal with this. I can imagine, I mean, those countries uh, were on the front lines of SARS, especially China back in uh, 2002, 2003. Precisely, very good point. 
You're exactly right. And in some of the press that I read, actually read some stuff from the Korean Times and other Asian sources, is that they have in place a lot of authorities, uh, government apparatus to handle these types of crises. And it is exactly, as you said, because of their previous experience in the early 2000s with SARS. And obviously that's giving them a head start. One of the interesting um, distinctions here when we cover this crisis is uh, the numbers. We're always looking at infection rates death totals, sadly, but also the high profile, the famous people I mentioned, uh, Rand Paul, U.S. Senator, just before we sat down in front of the microphone here, the breaking news is that Prince Charles has contracted the coronavirus. So yes, how people yes. react either to numbers or to famous people getting this, I think, is, uh, is kind of an interesting dimension of this crisis. Well, in this, you know, social media fixated and obviously here a worship of sport figures and actors and actresses and also what's happening with Instagram and influencers and so on. For some reason, as a population nowadays, we're, you know, very uh, impacted by uh, things that happen to famous people for good or bad. And I think you're going to start seeing more high profile cases. Obviously, now, as you mentioned, Prince Charles, pretty high profile, but I think most millennials don't care so much. But let's say a Taylor Swift or, uh, you know, we had recently an American Kevin Durant. But if somebody of that stature actually, if it goes south of them, I think this is going to have a major impact as some of the young people don't seem to take this very seriously today. That's certainly one of the issues that we'll be talking about here on this podcast is this generational aspect. The way the different generations perhaps take this more seriously and also different groups are more affected, less affected. Like here in Stockholm, uh, where we're doing this podcast, apparently quite a few of the infections um, percentage-wise have come from an area a little bit west of town where it's a high immigration population. And one of the critiques right. is that they're not receiving enough information in languages that they understand. There is that. There's also the whole aspect that certain cultures have more of a generational aspect to their living arrangements, like in Spain and other parts of Southern Europe and so on. The communities around Stockholm also come from areas where people live for various reasons. Uh, we have multiple generations living together. And of course, this is uh, you know, a climate in which the, the virus can spread more easily. It's sort of odd because on the one hand, and I include myself in this, you want to look at this from an optimistic perspective and you look outside the window and the sun is shining and people are going out jogging anyway they are here in Stockholm. And things, you know, look fairly normal and you kind of fool yourself into thinking, well, you know what, this thing's under control, it's not so bad. But then, of course, if you're like me and I could go into your different media sources and all and you see what's going on, you realize, no, wait a minute, there's a great contrast, there's a great dichotomy about my perception and the reality. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that. I, I don't want to be Dr. Doom, but sometimes in my discussions with uh, friends and also people in other countries with my speak, both in France and, and in, in the United States, I, I sort of, you know, get back from others. Ah, man, you're being a, too much of a pessimist. Uh, this isn't such a big deal. And going back to what some political figures and others have said, I had just a bad cold and so on. But I'm afraid it's not. Uh, but of course, I would love to be completely wrong. Although Making sense such. of this situation is uh, is incredibly difficult. It's actually rather surreal. I, I agree with you 100% that uh, you and I, of course, were following this pretty closely in different uh, locations. You're uh, from New York. It's the most hard-hit part of the United States and, and even the world at this point. But here in Stockholm, I mean, I haven't, you know, I haven't been in the center of the city for the last 10 or 12 days, uh, staying in my neighborhood just south of town. And uh, things are pretty normal here. You know, people are on the streets. People are in the parks. People are walking around. And I'm not criticizing that, but I'm just observing and thinking, what what do people in New York know? What do people in Milan know? What do people in other places know that we don't know? But anyway, let's hear from Paul. So here on Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic, this is Eric Paglia together with Mark Deshark. And now turning things over to Paul Tehart in an interview that I conducted with him on uh, the evening of uh, Monday, the 23rd of March. Kind of the Dutch approach, which we also see in variations in, in other countries in kind of central, perhaps northern Europe, where there's a heavy emphasis on leaving it to people to do the right thing. 
rather than you know the state stepping in in a, a fairly heavy-handed fashion from uh, from day one almost. I think that has nothing to do with the progress of the epidemic, but to me seems very much grounded in a political culture in relations that citizens have to the state, if you like, democratic tradition, democratic norms. Now, obviously, all of that is flexible and will prove to be uh, even more flexible if the numbers uh, on the medical side do not uh, improve, uh, then I think even those more consensus-oriented states such as the Netherlands will show their teeth. Although uh, this is not the only scenario that uh, one can think of. You can also think of scenarios where the progress of the disease is not so much halted but slowed down. So the system, the medical system is uh, in control because of these kind of lockdown and social distancing measures. But the unintended consequences of those measures start to bite. Think of a uh, rise in domestic violence incidents. Think of rising suicides, for example. So you can see all kinds of, if you like, collateral damage pop up. When that takes bigger forms, when that becomes very public, at some point there might be pressures actually to ease lockdowns, ease social distancing uh, measures. So, so there's not one dominant scenario that countries uh, should be working towards. I think there are many possibilities on, on, uh, for how this can continue. So in a way, all countries need to keep their options open. But clearly, you can see countries groping for repertoires that they are familiar with. Now, if I want to be uh, blunt about it, I don't think that the president of France had much of an option but to go for that kind of uh, martial uh, response because in, in French political culture when in times of national emergency uh, you do not resort to that kind of if you like military war style war rhetoric etc uh, and heavy policing uh, of policy uh, you will be judged as weak whereas I think in a political culture such as the Dutch if you would do exactly the same thing as Macron did you would create some form of revolt uh, I don't think parliament or or the public would uh, stand for it uh, Dutch publics need to be taken along a path uh, and they cannot be rushed into a path and not forced into a path by the state are countries really monitoring each other's responses and trying to calibrate and and, and learn from each other or are they just pursuing their own national let's say priorities and instincts uh look i i i'm in regular contact with senior people in the uh, health department here in this country uh, and they assure me that they and their technical experts, etc., are closely monitoring what they uh, learn from other countries. They're also actively soliciting data. Uh, so on, on the medical side, I am reasonably confident that there's a lot of exchange going on. There's also obviously some concern about uh, reliability of information from certain countries. But since this, since there's now so many countries, including countries whose information we do trust involved in this, uh, I think that medical sort of sub-community, um, that information sharing seems to be taking place. Now, when it comes to enforcement measures or the calibration of social distancing measures, lockdown measures, etc., um, my sense is that there's there's a little or no coordination. There's a strong sense that it needs to be horses for courses. On the one hand, you may have regional variations within countries, and you have, if you like, national policy styles, national political cultures that need to be taken into account. Uh, levels of trust in public institutions, 
uh, that all weigh into, if you like, the making of the policy mix. And my sense is that they are less uh, interested in uh, what their neighbors, neighboring countries are doing at this point. What, however, you would hope is that people will see and will be interested in, uh, if you like, the correlation between what happens on the medical front and measures that are implemented to control public behavior. Uh, surely, uh, we wouldn't be going through all this trouble of controlling public behavior if we didn't think that made a difference. So in other words, if numbers in Germany, for example, stay significantly lower than those in Holland, as they have done at least up until now, maybe people will start to scratch their heads what it is about the German institutional setup, uh, the suite of policy responses, uh, modes of communication, monitoring, whatever, you know, all those policy parameters. Hopefully people will get interested in that because uh, there is scope for policy learning, not just on the medical side, but certainly also on, on the uh, influencing public behavior side. Now, given all these different contexts, these national contexts, perhaps it's hard to give general advice, but Paul, from your, from your many years of working with crisis management, is there any advice you could give in general how countries could manage this crisis better? Well, look, I think a crisis of this size, by definition, will have a very long tail. As you are managing in the present the problems of today, you've got to make time and devote mental energy to thinking ahead, to discerning how might this evolve in a week, in a month, in three months, six months, a year, etc. And you have to have people from various disciplinary perspectives informing that thinking and occasionally sort of popping into the real centers of decision making so as to get the policymakers, the crisis managers out of that tunnel of, if you like, tactical operational responses and very reactive modes of crisis management towards a more proactive, purpose-driven, strategic approach. And those are not just feel-good terms. What that actually means is confronting them with the really hard dilemmas that might be ahead, whether it be how deeply are we willing to wreck our economies with all implications that has for the larger population's health and well-being in order to save 80-plus-year-olds. Now, that's a very crude, utilitarian question to ask, but I have no doubt whatsoever that if the numbers don't start to look good soon and quarantine measures stiffen and are, are being prolonged, that that question, for example, will be asked. And so you cannot have policymakers surprised uh, when that question gets thrown at them, whether it's in a town hall meeting or virtual town hall meeting or in parliament or uh, on social media, etc., etc., They need to have faced up to the possibility of that question arising. And there's an N number of other, you know, reasonably predictable questions or dilemmas that may come to pass under certain scenarios. So that that's, I think, a very important kind of high-level a recommendation that I would give to policymakers, regardless of where they are. I mean, these are value judgments, right? Exactly what politicians are supposed to make, these very value-oriented yeah. decisions. But of course, in a crisis like this, yeah, and it's so interesting, much... you know, I, I, I'm not sure how this is played out in screen, but in the initial major address to the nation, our prime minister basically said, we follow the experts. Uh, and then he specifically mentioned, um, you know, the, basically that's equivalent of the chief medical officer. Uh, which then basically meant two things. One, this is not about making value judgments. This is about listening to experts. Uh, secondly, there's one type of expertise that counts, and that's uh, virological expertise. Uh, and I think both these claims uh, are not sustainable. Uh, as you say, if 
complex crises like these are multifaceted uh, and almost any crisis by definition is political in its implications. It involves value judgments uh, and those value judgments need to be made and faced by politicians in a kind of proactive fashion. Secondly, it means uh, that not just one type of expertise, one monopoly of expertise uh, will do to inform decision-making, to inform deliberation about those values that need to be made. Uh, we need you know, a variety of information uh, sources. In, in Holland, the uh, so-called Central Planning Bureau, which is basically the government's uh, economic think tank, will present, or maybe today they may have presented them already, but they will present four scenarios, economic scenarios, based around a timeline. What if this lasts three months? What if this lasts six months up to what if this lasts 18 months? And you can imagine that the economic consequences and the consequences for the government's coffers of an 18-month scenario are, are pretty uh, drastic and dramatic. So all of a sudden you get a new sort of voice of expertise and a new set of considerations injected into uh, the public uh, debate. I think that's that's only for the better, even if it doesn't make things uh, any simpler. Also, experts can disagree, right? You can get different information from different experts, even on the same uh, subject matter. And then, you, of course, as a leader, you have to make some sort of decision based upon the, these conflicting uh, information and analyses, right? They can they can have very different conclusions, even experts within the yeah. same field, whether it's uh, medical yeah, experts absolutely. or what have you. Yeah, look, it's really tough. Uh, I, my boss, my then boss and I wrote an article about this, experts and decision makers in crisis situations back in 1991. And, and even then, you know, we looked at a whole bunch of cases uh, from various fields, whether it's natural disasters, terrorist incidents, economic, etc. And almost always you found that there was, precisely as you say, you had experts within disciplines disagree and you had different types of expertise sort of imposing itself, its its frame of the situation, its uh, suite of policy responses on the debate. Uh, and yeah, you know, in a way, this is uh, ultimately when push comes to shove, what we have politics for. I'm reminded of a book by uh, an American philosopher, Paul Deasing, where he, he basically said that this is the essence of political rationality, to somehow find a way to deal with all these other partial res- rationalities of the various professions and disciplines, uh, uh, and that, that, that there is no order process for that. Uh, there can only be a deliberative process. Uh, it cannot be uh, adding and subtracting. It cannot be, uh, if you like, an analytical form of rationality. It has to be a discursive one. That is something that, that I expect all of these governments involved uh, in uh, the corona response to go through, whether it's out in the open, in, in interaction with parliaments, or, you know, in the um, in bunkers uh, of crisis centers, they will, these politicians will have to, to sort of weigh apples uh, and oranges and different types of apples, etc. And, and at the end of the day, it's down to who they trust, who they choose to listen to, who feels good. It's not a kind of a rational, cool process as as you would perhaps, uh, in a kind of naive way, hope for. Of course, the uh, future is very uncertain here, how this uh, pandemic will develop in terms of the spread of the disease and such. But um, how will the management of this crisis change? I mean, regardless of the uh, of the, the course of the, of the pandemic, I mean, how, how will the, the pressures on the decision makers change as this wears on for days, weeks, months, a year or more? Will this fundamentally change the way the way the leaders make trade-offs and value judgments? 
Well, it, it's hard to say. You know, I think uh, even really bad situations have a way of normalizing. Let me illustrate this. Uh, when I was a very young man, just starting in this kind of business of crisis research, I was asked to come and give lectures on Northern Ireland. And uh, this was at a very peak time in the conflict. There had just been a massive, massive, uh, very bloody attack uh, in Enniskillen in uh, in the autumn of 1987. I came in a week after this. Uh, and I was taken to the compound of the um, RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the police force there. And they took me to their operations center. And there was this big electronic map of uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, and you could see the various towns on it, etc. Uh, and there were red lights flashing uh, on a couple of places. And I asked him, what are those red lights? And uh, the operator who uh, toured me around, he said, oh, oh they're just bomb alerts. Uh, and, and to me, that, that sentence, the way it was spoken, sort of taught me a lesson that, you know, People can and, and systems can get used to very extraordinary situations. They will find a way of of normalizing them. So at the moment, we see senior politicians uh, and obviously anybody in the health system, in the economic policy system. You see people like my wife, who's a public servant in the health system. You see them working around the clock, you know, 16 to 18 hour days. But that's part of the surge phase of a crisis. We obviously have to radically act up, organize up, connect to sort of deal with the onslaught, like the wave of corona rolling into your country. Uh, but at, at some point, that surge will run its course and systems are being put in place. Equipment is being purchased. Crisis structures appear to work or have been, uh, you know, adjusted a little bit, etc. And at some point, I think the, the top people can then start to spend less time on this and keep their eyes on other balls. Uh, you know, the rest of life needs to be governed as well. And I think that is only natural and that's only healthy. The worst you could think of would be an entire government being entirely consumed, operating largely out of bunkers dealing with corona for the next uh, 12 months or so, you know, that would be really harmful. So there needs to be sensible delegation so that others can sort of then manage the terrible but ongoing medical response effort and the, if you like, influencing public behavior effort, while the attention of governments then go to, if you like, the even larger picture of the economic, perhaps in international geopolitical the social, longer-term ramifications of this crisis. That's a sobering thought that this could become normalized and that the society will have to accept sacrifices and casualties on, on scales that uh, have been experienced uh, in our lifetimes, Paul, uh, certainly not since the Second World War yeah. in the Western world. Yeah, and and we, we, we don't know. Uh, it'll be interesting to, for you to maybe consider talking to people in social psychology or sociology and history, etc. We, we have no way of knowing, at least I don't have any way of knowing, of what this exposure to the fundamental frailty of the societies are highly complex, tightly coupled, highly interconnected societies that we have built up that have made us, at least in the West, uh, pretty rich and comfortable, etc., uh, now we are, are sort of given a very hard and painful lesson about the unintended consequences, or if you like, the Achilles heel of this way of life, that any kind of 
antibody will find its make its way through those interconnected systems at great speed and to devastating effect. I'm not sure what our experience of this will do to the way we look at ourselves, uh, the way we look at our freedoms, the market, the state. I mean, some people, maybe it's wishful thinking, some people say, well, you know, maybe this will be the final death of neoliberalism, the power of neoliberalism as an ideology, and we will revert back to a climate of more uh, stronger community. You know, for those of you who are familiar with the work of the sociologist Emil Durkheim, back from Gesellschaft, society as a kind of atomistic construct of atomistic human beings towards uh, Gesellschaft, society as a basically a community of fate held together by bonds of solidarity. Now, that is a very, uh, you know, a particular and in some ways very optimistic uh, scenario, but I have no way of telling whether things will go in, in, in that direction or a much darker direction. But I think it is important, as we are still struggling to contain this disease, uh, that we should give serious thought to what our experiences of that struggle uh, will do to our consciousness, our values, our willingness to accept certain things, our, our unwillingness to accept other things from the state or from the market or what have you. I think if ever there was a crisis in recent decades that has a transformative effect, it is this one.